Hi, and welcome to the second of our Morpin and Bra in Conversation episodes. I'm Jyoti Bra, and this week I'll be asking Harpal and Caleb to help us think about that most divisive of topics, immigration. Um, but before we get going, um, Harpal wanted to uh, make a small clarification about something uh, he talked about in our last discussion when we were uh, talking about India and the farmers' movement. Just a couple of corrections. I mentioned that there were going to be three elections in North Indian states, and one of the states I mentioned was Haryana. Actually, it's not Haryana, it's the small state of Uttarakhand. Secondly, Caleb asked me a question about the Socialist Unity Party of India, and I misunderstood as though he'd asked me something about SITU, which is the Center of Indian Trade Unions, which is a CPIM-dominated trade union. And I said it had millions of members. It does have millions of members. And no party in India has millions of members. So uh, that, that was my mistake. And the only thing I would say about the Socialist Unity Party of India is, one, it says India is an imperialist country. And there are a number of others added to it. So the whole world becomes a country, world of And secondly, ever since the Indian independence, they have said that the stage of Indian revolution is socialist, whereas most Indian communist parties quite rightly believe it's a democratic stage where there would be a revolution uh, led by the proletariat um, in alliance with the peasantry under the leadership of the working class to establish a democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and the peasantry. And so that, that's all I have to say. Great. Thanks, Rapal. Now, just so you know, our, our uh, connection is dropping a little bit, but because we can, we can still hear you, even when we can't see your picture very well. You're gone? No, no, no. Listen, we can hear you. So we're going to continue and hope that if your voice carries on coming, it doesn't really matter if the picture messes up a little bit. The voice is the main thing we're after. So... Um, okay. We will continue for now and see what happens. Hopefully the, con the, the connection will, will stabilize. Um, I'm gonna ask Kapal to kick us off again uh, this week, but as before, Caleb, anytime you feel like jumping in with a reflection or a question of your own, uh, please just go ahead. So Kapal, I wanted us to talk first of all about the phenomenon of mass migration, because of course we know that human beings have always moved from before they were even homo sapiens uh, it's not a new phenomenon for people to move from place to place. But the phenomenon of mass migration is relatively recent. Um, do you think you could talk us through a little bit what the, what the causes are? Mainly, there are two causes. One is that people move from one place to another within the country's frontiers or from one country to another in search of living. The main, main reason is an, is an economic one. And the second reason is uh, per persecution, that sometimes persecution drives people from their, um, their territories, from their country to other countries. These are the two main factors for, for my, my migration. You only have to look at uh, what, what's been happening uh, over the last 60, 70 years. There's a huge amount of migration that is very much connected with the question of poverty. Imperialism has so devastated its former colonial uh, uh, dominions that these people cannot find a living 
in their countries of origin and they move therefore in search of food. And then of course, there have been a lot of imperialist wars which have driven hundreds of thousands of people out of their, uh, their countries. Um, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there has been endless imperialist war by imperialist powers against oppressed nations. You, you had the breakup of Yugoslavia, which led to a number of wars. Then you had, of course, the invasion of Iraq in 2001. Uh, you had the invasion of Afghanistan. And this has, of course, driven huge number of people out of their countries to seek protection somewhere else. Absolutely. Um, there's something that often comes up uh, when you talk to people on the left now, uh, which I think is worth looking at and clarifying a little. And that's this question of um, how we should, as workers, understand the phenomenon of mass, mass migration. Uh, I think it's quite difficult for people when they see living standards declining and they see the reserve army of labor being constantly replenished by uh, immigrants who are willing and able to work for less than is usual in the, in the countries they arrive in. And they see, well, the capitalists are benefiting from this phenomenon. They're getting cheap, a cheap labor force that they can push around really easily, very vulnerable one. Um, and therefore, it's bad for the working class. Therefore, we as socialists should oppose mass migration. It helps the capitalists. That means it's bad for us. This is the kind of logic that uh, often comes up in conversations about immigration. And I wondered, uh, both of you, what your thoughts were on that uh, line of reasoning. Well, I just want to chime in and, you know, in response to the first question, you know, it's I agree with with everything Harpel said. But the funny thing is, especially here in the United States, uh, we're constantly told something different about the cause of immigration. We're told that the cause of immigration happens because America is just so amazing. It's the greatest country in the world, and people just want to come here so bad because this is just a happy land of freedom and harmony, and it's so amazing. Um, that's what we're told. And uh, it's very frustrating to hear that, especially uh, in the conversation around immigration now coming from the left, because there is a humanitarian crisis happening. If you look at what's been happening at the U.S.-Mexico border and how especially it's intensified since Joe Biden has taken office, I mean, there are thousands of people. They find dead bodies every day. I mean, this has been going on for decades. They find dead bodies every day along the U.S. border. There is a humanitarian crisis happening in Central America spawned by U.S. imperialism, spawned by the, the overthrow of the government of Honduras and the installing of a narco gang regime there, uh, continuous backing of, of authoritarian and and just neoliberal regimes in Guatemala that have impoverished people, uh, the USA funneling drugs into Central America and funneling weapons into Central America to fight against communists like the, the Sandinistas and, and revolutionary forces. And yes, you know, Central America has, I mean, th there are people fleeing and there are people in dire poverty. There are people that, you know, in, in those regions who don't speak Spanish, they still speak indigenous languages, have never had electricity, never had running water. The, the flow of US arms into the hands of drug cartels in Mexico has made life unlivable for people. 
Um, and there's a, there's a crisis on our border and the left does not want to have that conversation in the United States. Instead, they want to have a conversation about how this is the American dream. They want to just kind of applaud this and deny that this is a serious situation, a very serious situation. These people don't want to leave their homes. They don't want to leave their communities. Yes, you're always going to have some people who, who come to a different country, go from one country to another. And yes, the United States being an imperialist country has, has more wealth than, than these areas, but there is a, an imperialism spawned crisis that has been created. And uh, the right uh, wants to talk about the immigrants as if they're all criminals, they're dangerous, uh, you know, and, and they just want to talk about it in kind of a, a xenophobic way. And the left just wants to applaud and celebrate what's going on as if this is this is just a great thing. Look, you know, applaud. They have parades to welcome them. This is the American dream. People coming to a new land. No one wants to talk about how U.S. imperialism is creating a crisis. And and the fact that there is no acknowledgement of this and there's no acknowledgement of the fact that infrastructure is needed in in Mexico, infrastructure is needed in, in Central America and elsewhere uh, is a big hole in the conversation. And, uh, and you know, what you just asked, Jyoti, uh, the worst line I ever heard, you know, back in 2006, there was a huge upsurge of migrants in response to uh, an anti-immigrant law that was going to be passed. Uh, it was, you know, and that was, there was a huge demonstration for May 1st, 2006, the biggest May Day demonstration that had happened really since the 1930s in New York City. Uh, never had there been that many people in Union Square on May 1st. And so immediately the Democrats who had been supporting this repressive law that, that would have, you know, put tighter restrictions on guest workers, et cetera, immediately they got on television and they all just started saying, oh, well, the immigrants do the jobs Americans won't do. They do the jobs Americans won't do. And I heard that at the time and I was living in a small town in, in Ohio. And I, I mean, my, my community was furious. They were furious because there were many Americans who said, are you kidding me? We need jobs, you know, and this idea, what is this? We won't do that. There's plenty of, of Americans, you know, born in the United States who, who do custodial work. There's plenty of Americans who work at construction sites. This idea that, that immigrants do the jobs Americans just won't do. Uh, first of all, it's, 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 it's not accurate. There are plenty of people here in the United States that do jobs that are done by immigrants. And, and number two, uh, if you add to that, um, you, you you look at, at, at the data, there's an element of, of racism in that, right? It's like assumed that, you know, like white Americans can't do, you know, shouldn't do certain certain jobs. That should be only only people from Mexico, only only brown skinned folks should do these jobs or something like that. It was a very, very bizarre way of talking about it. And it ultimately hurt the Democrats in, in the long term. The Democrats lost electorally uh, because of that perception, because there were plenty of people in the United States who said that that's that's just simply not true and that we need to talk about the issue of mass migration in a way that, on the one hand, doesn't feed into the xenophobia and the idea that that we should build a giant wall and all the immigrants are drug dealers and terrorists and and feeds into the right wing xenophobia. But we also have to talk about it in a way that doesn't deny the reality that there is a crisis. People are coming because they're fleeing dire conditions created by U.S. imperialism, number one. And number two, uh, the bosses are benefiting from this. The capitalists are maneuvering this to their advantage. This isn't, you know, just the American dream. It's not beneficiary. It's not good for the migrant workers who are having to flee their countries. It's not good for the workers of, of the United States that are having to compete with, with, with labor from other places, et cetera, and that, uh, that the working class is being hurt by this crisis of mass migration. Thanks, Caleb. Rapo. Um, I mean, I, I think it's take, taking the eye of the ball, really, the working class is being hurt because capitalism is what capitalism is. 
it's not being hurt either because of the local workers or because of the workers who come from abroad. Capitalism by its very nature, even if you were to reduce the population of all the imperialist countries by 50% over a very short period of time, it would adjust to that and would create a population which is a reserve army of labor, which is supernumerary to the need, needs of capital. Unemployment is built into cap, cap, capitalism. And that is something that we really must, must understand. Secondly, even if we were to accept the argument, just for the sake of argument, America is that wonderful place. Everybody wants to go, go there. The basic fact is people do not up sticks and leave for other countries whose language and culture they are unacquainted with, either because of a better climate, because most of them come from climates which are much better than the climates of most imperialist countries. Secondly, they don't come because of the cuisine, because in most places they're coming from places where the food is better than the food that they will be e eating there. I have personal experience of that. And thirdly, they're not certainly not coming because there's a warm welcome waiting them. Nobody's calling the huddled masses to be freed and go to the United States of America. These are lines on the Statue of Liberty of a far, far gone past when America was a revolutionary democratic country. It no longer is, it's an imperialist country. And what Miss Liberty has to offer is nothing but oppression and super, super exploitation. But if despite that people come, it's because they are des des desperate, they're desperate to arrive. There are other things that we can talk about it later. It's not just the immigrants who come that actually result in the loss of jobs. There are all sorts of other things. The most important one is export of capital. With the click of a button, capital is exported because there is too much capital for the needs of the imperialist countries. And there are no profitable opportunities for investment. They're always seeking other countries. This can be explained particularly in relation to China. There's been a huge amount of export of capital and China has built its manufacturing base and become the really the workshop of the world. Just as England was in the 19th century, China is today the workshop of the world. And that is because of partly export of capital. Secondly, cheap exports from countries like China. Cheap exports. There's then outsourcing of jobs. You heard of the, the guy who answers your questions about your insurance policy and suddenly you find he's speaking from Hyderabad. He's not speaking from Connecticut, right? right. So there's out outsourcing. And most important of all, jobs are lost because of the increasing productivity of labor. In America, it's not generally known, seven to eight million jobs are destroyed every quarter because of this phenom phenomenon. So jobs are being lost all the time, but you don't notice the job lost because of productivity of labor. You don't notice because of outsourcing. You don't because of cheap imports. Everybody's happy to go to Walmart because they can get things very cheap. China has actually increased the living standards of the workers in America because everything that they can buy is much cheaper than would be otherwise the case. 
But what you do notice is a foreign worker coming home. When he's coming across the borders, he can be noticed. All other means of job losses are not noticed, no, noticed so much. And this, of course, is exploited. Every time there's a crisis of capitalism, every time there's unemployment, the bourgeoisie and its media organs, from print media to electronic media, point the finger at foreign workers. Because it's much easier to actually pin, pin down a foreigner and saying, well, he's the one who's taken your job. You can go after him. He's living in the next street. You can probably go in and attack him. But you can't attack export or capital. So people who actually want the jobs not to be exported, if they think about it, they're basically against, of course, they don't know it. They're basically against imperialism. Because one of the chief characteristics of imperialism is the export of capital. And until you get rid of imperialism, this export of capital will not, will not stop. And I think our attention should be pointed towards that direction. Insofar as it's within our power, we should bring to the working class this particular knowledge that it's capital, it's, it's workings, it's hankering after more and more profits all the time which is the cause of the misery of the working class. Nothing else. It's not the fellow workers living abroad, sending cheap exports, or the fellow workers who come from abroad to earn a living here who are, who are our enemies. And I think we should give up the habit of, causing, of, of designating some of these imperialist parties as the left. I mean, like the Democrats in America are called the left. They're not left. They're they are more reactionary, if that's possible, than the Republican Party. They're, they're, they're liberal imperialists, which means they want intervention everywhere. They are going with a ham hammer, and their answer to any problem is that they treat other people as nails and they can, they can, they can, they can hammer them. War after war, uh, austerity at home and war abroad, and that's what they indulge in. And they serve, of course, Monopoly capitalism, that's that's basically what's happening. Did you want to add to that, Caleb? Oh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm in agreement largely with, with what was said and that uh, it, it's weird because the, the capitalists have it both ways uh, with the Democrats and their narrative in the United States. Uh, and I, I know things are different in UK politics, but with the Democrats, on the one hand, they get this, you know, this push for, yes, bring in more folks, uh, globalization, more export of capital, more interventions to destabilize countries, uh, you know, more U.S., you know, export of weapons and, and destabilization of Central America, et cetera. Uh, you know, more interventions in, in places like Syria and Libya to create refugee crises. Uh, Etc. And and then we just have to celebrate the fact that people then flee from those countries to come here. Um, and that's the Democrats. And then on the Republican side, uh, you know, when those people do come, oh, they're terrorists, they're rapists, they're drug dealers. Okay, so when they come here, they're more under the gun, they're more terrified and easier to exploit. Um, and so you know, they're just they're they're talking. It, it's basically a good cop bad cop routine where at the end of the day. Uh, they get what they want. Uh, on the one hand, migrants and refugees keep coming, uh, and we continue to have the humanitarian crisis that is driving them on the one hand. 
And on the set, on the other hand, when they do come, they live in the shadows. They're terrorized. They can't organize and fight for their rights. Uh, there's there's raids in their neighborhoods. There's political repression. Uh, U.S. U.S. workers are stoked up to be bigoted and hateful toward them. So the, the bosses win either way. Um, and, um, you know, there are divisions, I would say, in the ruling class here in the United States. And and sometimes this debate about migration will will get to some divisions. For example, um, one of the one of the issues uh, that I think was a division in the ruling class, what we saw when Donald Trump first took office, they made a big deal out of it, what they called his Muslim ban. Uh, well, it wasn't a ban on Muslims. Many Muslim countries were not affected. Indonesia, uh, for example, is a very Muslim country. It wasn't affected by it. Uh, but what was going on was that these countries that Donald Trump was was banning visas from were countries where there are conflicts going on. And he was essentially taking the ability of American intelligence to bribe people with visas away. And so people in Syria, people in Iraq, uh, you know, people in Yemen, who basically the way the United States gets them to, to do their bidding uh, is it bribes them and their family with visas to come to the United States. Well, Donald Trump took that bribe away uh, and that was infuriating to American intelligence. And they were just very angry about this because this is their soft power bribe that they've been using. And there are some differences in the ruling class about, about you know, issues like this, about how we, you know, how the United States relates to forces in the Middle East, bribes them with visas to come to the United States, et cetera. Um, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they have the same agenda. The ruling class of the United States, they want American corporations, American banks, uh, you know, Wall Street firms to dominate the world. They don't want any competition. They want the developing world to remain impoverished. They want to destabilize and overthrow any anti-imperialist government that might emerge. Uh, and they want to uh, drive down living standards in the United States at the same time. And so stoking up anti-immigrant bigotry and uh, also facilitating uh, the continued uh, crisis of mass migration is both feeding that agenda. So at the end of the day, they're on the same side. There are tactical differences, I would argue, in about how to do it. Um, but at the end of the day, they have ultimately the, the same goals. I wanted to come back to this um, question of the relationship between migration and living standards for the working class, um, because we hear very often that it's migration, mass migration, which is causing the decline in living standards in the imperialist countries and has been in the, re in the recent period, probably the last 40 years, we've been seeing a decline. And that's been connected with, in the, in the popular mindset, it's been connected with mass migration. Um, is it actually the cause, the result of mass migration, or is something else uh, to blame for the decline in living standards? Rapal. Well, it's not, it's not connected with mass migration because plenty of countries have received mass migration at the same time as the standard of living shot up very considerably. United States of America is a perfectly good example. After the Second World War, um, when the Europeans had finished their uh, destruction of the material wealth, as well as uh, tens of millions of human lives, they needed labor desperately. And for example, in Britain, most of the foreign labor came from the Indian subcontinent and the, Car and the Caribbean. And the French foreign labor came from Algeria and number of other, other countries. And it happened at the same time that the standard of living was constantly going up. It's just that by the late 60s, that boom had basically come to an end. And therefore, 
the standard of living is they were under pressure after that, but not because of immigrants. They were because that is what capitalism is. After it has gone through a period of boom and there's a recession, standard of it hits working people hard. And then of course, capitalism will always try and shove the blame on somebody else. And what better than foreign, foreign workers? It's got nothing whatever to do with, with mass migration. Migrants who come, don't just come with mouths to feed, they come with hands to work and they're willing to work and they work very hard. I mean, everybody knows that if, as a migrant worker to earn something, you've got to much, work much harder than the, lo than the local people. So it's not as though you come to a, a life that offers luxury and you're living in a five-star hotel while local workers work and bring, bring you your breakfast, lunch, dinner. That is, not, that is not the case. So I think the blame should go where it really belongs. That capitalism cannot go through a constantly ascending curve of economic prosperity. Once, once the markets are glutted and they can't sell, then there is a recession. Because under capitalism, one of the very first conditions for any production to take place is that the means of production should be converted into capital. It's only when they're converted into capital has capital any use, use for them. And once they can no longer be converted into capital because the markets are saturated, then in those circumstances, there's a recession. No capitalist produces for the sake of production. No capitalist produces to satisfy the needs of working people. He produces to make money. And if money cannot be made, no production will take place. And that's precisely what is taking place. Since the Second World War, we've gone through a number of recessions. Now, you two are young enough to remember the, 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 the 1997 crisis that started in the Far East, with the currency crisis in, in the Far East, then jumping continents to America, uh, to Russia and then other places. You are aware of the dot-com dot bubble. You're aware of the 2007, 2008 financial crisis, which actually knocked the stuffing out of the arrogance of imperialist countries, that they were the masters of the universe and everything was fine. It brought to a juddering halt all the developments that had been taking, take, taking place. And that actually brought into disrepute the whole system of what has come to be known as neoliberalism, which is another word for unhindered imperialist expansion and brigandage. Caleb. Well, indeed, I, I would agree. Um, we have put forward at the Center for Political Innovation uh, that what is needed in particular in relation to the crisis of mass migration in the United States is a program of economic development of Central America in coordination uh, with, with China. Uh, we need China and the United States and Mexico and Nicaragua to team up and bring economic development to that region. Uh, we want to build something called the Sandino Zapata Economic Corridor uh, that would bring jobs, uh, education, healthcare, and economic development to that region as a way of dealing with the crisis of mass migration, the crisis of underdevelopment, uh, lack of infrastructure, and, and the crisis of, of drug gangs, et cetera. Um, and there have been some interesting developments in Mexico. Uh, you know, there have been there have been kind of vigilante groups that have gone out to fight the drug cartels. And we've seen a development of that 
uh, in Mexico. And there's been kind of a, a popular resistance uh, to the drug cartels. And that's one thing that should be acknowledged. Um, and that, uh, that, I mean, again, you know, if you, we are always given this body count by the U.S. imperialists. You know, you can't support communism because Stalin killed 100 gajillion million people. And so if you support communism, you're supporting that. What is the body count of U.S. policy in Central America, if you think about it? Starting, uh, starting from the late 70s, where the USA started arming terrorists and extremists to fight against the government of Nicaragua. They started backing a brutal counterinsurgency in El Salvador. Uh, and if you, if you talk about the flow of U.S. weapons, you talk about how it's been exposed by U.S. journalist Gary Webb, that the U.S. government then facilitated these Contras getting involved in, in the drug trade and bringing, uh, bringing crack cocaine to the United States, which took a humanitarian toll on the population here, the crack epidemic of the 1980s, which was then used to justify the prison industrial complex and the rise in mass incarceration. Uh, here. Um, and if you, you, you add up, I mean, the, the body count is massive. The amount of people who've died fleeing their homes, flee, trying to get away from these drug cartels, the death toll of these drug cartels. I mean, if someone were to do uh, what, what the imperialists claim to do, and they're adding up the, the body count of some famine that happened in a socialist country, they were to accurately go and, and look at the death toll of U.S. policy in Central America, we're looking at at tens of millions, maybe not even a hundred million deaths. I mean, this is a this is a policy of mass murder that has been perpetrated by U.S. imperialism, uh, and uh, and it's continuing to have the result of people fleeing. Um, and the only solution is economic development, and ultimately, ultimately, these regions asserting their independence, which we've seen uh, with the government of Nicaragua and the Sandinistas, uh, and you know, recently there has been the election. Uh, that was positive in Honduras. Let's see what comes out of it. There's been a, a, an anti-imperialist uh, elected to office in Honduras, finally. Uh, but you know, uh, it's it's been a continued catastrophe created by U.S. imperialism, very similar to what they did. I mean, Libya at the time that Libya was a was a socialist country under the leadership of, of of Gaddafi, people from all over the African continent were trying to get into Libya to get some of the benefit. Uh, of, of what was happening. Gaddafi had a policy of giving a job to any African who showed up in Libya. They had a very prosperous economy, the highest life expectancy on the African continent. But now that, you know, Libya has been forced to join, you know, the global free trade capitalist system with NATO bombs destroyed and devastated, things in Libya have gotten so bad that people are fleeing fleeing Libya on rafts. And there's a mass migration crisis from Libya. Libyans and, and other Africans are fleeing from from Libya, uh, trying to get to Italy, trying to get to Europe, crossing the Mediterranean, drowning and dying. This is imperialism that is responsible for this crisis, and it is it is it is a very big problem. And uh, you know, we need to we need to acknowledge this. And what Harpel said is absolutely correct about how how yes, it's not migrants that are driving down living standards. I mean, there has been a a continuous decline of the U.S. economy uh, since since the mid 70s. We've seen this. They have the, the country. There's been a, a drive and you know, drive to drop the wages of workers. They've been, you know, eliminating the good paying industrial jobs that were the base of the U.S. economy. Uh, at the same time, uh, we have stopped investing in the infrastructure of the country. I mean, the roads are crumbling. Uh, we have municipalities all across the United States that are uh, that are at this point unpaving their roads uh, because municipalities can't afford to maintain paved roads. Uh, and they are, they're, they're pulling up the asphalt and pulverizing it, replacing paved roads with dirt roads. 
Uh, the water treatment facilities are falling apart. The power plants are crumbling. Uh, last year, last winter in Texas, we saw the power grid just collapse under the weight of this. So it's not it's not migrant workers that are doing this. It's the imperialists are transitioning to a global a low wage model. They're kind of demolishing uh, demolishing the domestic economy of of the imperialist countries. And you know, a long time for a long time, what maintained uh, imperialism effectively was this labor aristocracy. This this layer of well paid workers in the homeland who had a higher living standard, uh, and they were thus then loyal to empire. Um, and you know, in the nineteen fifties in the United States, the labor aristocracy was very huge. There was a big layer of of working class people in the homeland who were you know steel workers, auto workers, uh, you know uh, various various industries. And because they had such a high living standard, they were big supporters of war and, and empire. But now the imperialists have determined that because of technology, uh, primarily, they, they just don't need as many workers in production, but also because of the globalized apparatus of production, they, they don't need, they can do it cheaper uh, with a global model of production than producing here in the homeland. Uh, they don't need the labor aristocracy anymore. So we're seeing the demolition of this, this industrial middle class, they call it. It wasn't middle class. It was well-paid workers, labor aristocrats. We're seeing that being demolished uh, as they're transitioning to a new stage of imperialism. Uh, and so living standards are going down and, and the crisis of mass migration accompanies this, but it's not the cause. Uh, it's yet another symptom of, of the transition to this global low wage economy uh, that the imperialists are developing. And I think among the Trump camp, uh, a, lot of, a lot of the workers on the Trump camp who are taken in by this anti-immigrant bigotry, anti-Islamic bigotry, uh, you know, there is, despite their bigotry, there is kind of an awareness of this. They see this. They see what the bosses are doing, how they are driving down living standards. And it's the duty of us Marxists to say, yes, and the problem isn't immigrant workers. The problem is global capitalism. And yes, your communities are being destroyed. And and we have the same interest as, as the immigrant workers and the workers in other countries who are fighting against capitalism and imperialism. Um, and to hijack the, the working class anger we're seeing across the United States in response to the devastation of the country. Paul, you want to come on any of that? Well, yes, Caleb's basically really, I think, answered his own question uh, because it's just basically very idealistic to believe that America will join hands with China or any such country to develop these, these countries. It's not the job of imperialism to develop countries. It's the job of imperialism to work for the maximization of, of profit. That's what they will do. If it, if they, as Stalin said, if they have to resort to hand labor, they will do it. If they have to improve productivity, they, they, they will do that. Whatever will serve, serve, serve their purpose. They're not interested in, in, in any such thing. I do not know the exact number of deaths that American imperialism has caused in, 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 in Latin America, but they've been there for 200 years. So it's gonna be considerable because there's no government there which is safe under the watchful eyes of our, of our Uncle Sam. But I can remember from my own life, they've killed 4 million Koreans, until the North Koreans are supposed to be the aggressive ones. They've killed 4 million Viet Vietnamese. They've killed over a million Iraqis. They've caused hundreds of thousands of deaths in, in Syria. They're causing tens of thousands of deaths in Ye Yemen, Yemen right now. And the list carries on. And then they, of course, commit various crimes through their local 
flunkies like Israel does on their behalf, regularly bombing neighboring countries, regularly killing Palestinian people, incarcerating, including four, five, six-year-old children. That's what imperialism is capable of doing. It's good at destruction. You know, throwing a bomb and destroying it. It's like the mafia. You, on the one hand, run a bombing section with bombs places, and then you've got a builder's contractors who go and take the contract to build it up. That's what the Americans and the other imperialist countries do. They destroy countries, and then they bid for contracts to rebuild. No sooner have they been rebuilt then starts another bombing campaign. The only way out of that is revolutionary struggle on the part of the oppressed people to overthrow imperialism, like the Chinese did, like the Vietnamese did, like the North Koreans did, and so on and so forth. Only that way can you improve the lives of local people. You get the country out of the clutches of imperialism, and you have an independent course, course of development. It's, you cannot rely on imperialist countries to improve living, living standards. That's not their job. As Lenin said, there would be no surplus of capital if capitalism could improve the living standards of the ordinary people. But it's not in the business of doing that. That's precisely it exports capital, because through the export of capital, it can make more money. It's not because it's in love with the Chinese people. It's not because they want to develop China. The only way they could make money was by taking production facilities there. Incidentally, the result of it has been horrifyingly bad for U.S. imperialism because they suddenly woken up, hey, we thought they were constantly going to produce cheap goods and they were just going to be subservient to us. But the Chinese have developed their own productive capacity. It's another question to be discussed another time, whether China would have made the same progress if it had followed socialist planning. My own view is it would have made even more progress. But the fact is, that China has belied the expectations of U.S. imperialism. It has developed whereby it becomes a competitor. It is a threat to American hegemony in more, more than one ways. That's why there's a constant campaign going on against China. And, and, and the same, uh, something similar has happened in Russia since Yeltsin was got rid of. Putin has actually stabilized Russia and is defending the interests of Russia. That's why he's demonized. That's why Russia is constantly being described as aggressive. Americans move closer and closer to the borders of Russia. They have incorporated several countries of the former socialist bloc, as well as former republics of the Soviet Union. Contrary to promises given at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, they have expanded NATO. And Russia has finally said, you will not expand into Ukraine. You will not bring your weapons closer to us than they were in 1997. And this time, we're wanting you to sign a treaty which will say that that is what, what you will do. So that's why Russia is portrayed as, as an aggressive power. And the only way the world can actually have a brighter future is to face imperialism down and defeat it everywhere. So coming back to, thanks for Paul, coming back to the question of uh, migrants and jobs, 
Um, Caleb talked a bit about this earlier, this uh, statement we get that uh, migrants do the jobs that no one else wants to do. Um, so I wondered uh, if you can tell us, if you know, if you remember, who used to do the jobs that we're told only migrants can do now? Well, no, I think I think the local people can do the jobs, but they want local rates. But the, the, the thing with migrants is they can be had on the cheap. Just as one time you could have women on the cheap. You know, if men were proving difficult, you employed women and children. Uh, this is the whole history of capitalism, that you will find cheaper materials for exploitation. And if they can be had, then you can always say men don't want to do, do the job. Maybe they don't but they want a proper rate for the job and the Europeans will do those jobs, provided there's a proper rate. But if you actually are going to pay a European the same rate that you pay to an illiterate janitress from Bangladesh, then you're not going to get the local, local people to do the job. It's not worth their while getting out of their house to do, to do, to, to do that. It's, 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 not, it's not worth it. But, but, but all the things that are going on about immigration, one of the things which we, we should never lose sight of it, there is something truly world historic and progressive about migration. It brings people of different countries together. It breaks down natural, uh, sorry, breaks down national narrow-mindedness. It brings people closer to it. And as Lennon quite rightly said, New York is a city that grinds workers from all nationalities into, Amer into Americans. And what is taking place, well, what was and then taking place in New York takes place in every big city in the world, in every large factory in the world, where people are brought together, thrown together, and they learn solidarity with each other. And that's why Lenin said, when workers are going from backward countries to imperialist countries, it is the job of the local working class leadership to enlist them into trade union work, to list them into political parties locally, because they bring with them not just backwardness and poverty, they also bring with them some really radical and revolutionary traditions, which can inject some blood into the working class movement, just as the Irish did in Britain in Marx and Engels', Engels day, and other workers have done since then. They are militant. And if you look at the strikes in Britain, for instance, you will not find a single strike that has been betrayed by workers from ethnic minorities. They fight to the, to the last. But there are plenty of fights that they wage which have been deserted by the, by the trade union movement. But then the trade union movement are the same to the locals. The minor strike in Britain was not defeated by the Thatcher government. It was basically defeated by a combination of the Thatcher government, the trade union movement in, 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 in Britain, and the intelligence services. There was a kind of un, unholy alliances against the mine workers union in this country. So what we have to do is to actually inculcate in the workers the spirit to fight for a revolutionary change in society, for socialism. That is the only thing we have to offer. We've got nothing better to offer than that. That's beautiful. And you've brought me on really nicely, Hapal, to the next question. So I'll, I'll pass it over to Caleb to expand a bit more as well on the part that the trade unions have played in all this. You know, um, as Hapal was kind of indicating there, 
you know, rather than enlisting uh, immigrant workers into the unions and making sure it wasn't possible for them to bring down the paying conditions locally, uh, it seems to me that they have in fact helped to fuel the divide between the native and the immigrant workers. Certainly that's been our experience here in Britain. Uh, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about that uh, in the States. Well, in the United States, the labor movement is particularly weak. I mean, it is far weaker than the labor movement in, in the UK, I would assess. I mean, at this point, um, you know, if, if workers are in unions, they're almost guaranteed to be government workers. Uh, you know, teachers are tend to be in labor unions. Federal employees tend to be in labor unions. Um, but aside from some key industries like steel manufacturing, automobile manufacturing, unions in the United States are just extremely weak. Um, and uh, part of this is due to the fact that the labor movement has just basically decided to use its resources to elect the Democratic Party uh, rather than to actually organize workers. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the last time there was a big victory where a major corporation was, was forced to sign a union contract in the United States was in the 1990s when UPS was unionized by the Teamsters. Uh, you know, the Teamsters, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Union, successfully forced, uh, forced UPS to sign a union contract. That was a huge victory uh, for the labor movement. And the Clinton administration responded to it by going after Ron Carey, the leader of the Teamsters Union, and basically barring him from, uh, from, any, uh, from any union activism and you know, using the government uh, to go after him and purge him from the Teamsters Union. Um, now, now, the teachers' unions of Chicago won a, a victory uh, during, during the, you know, the, the election of Barack Obama. They made a point of having the Chicago teachers' strike, which was pretty big, which, which was quite a mass mobilization. And they were able to, to kind of push back against Rahm Emanuel, who was the mayor of Chicago, who was also somebody very close to uh, U.S. You know, President Obama and part of the Obama machine and, and tied in with the Israeli military and such. And so that we saw that upsurge uh, you know, that happened in Chicago. But other than that, we see quite a weak labor movement. Um, and part of this uh, is, is part of the fact that the labor movement has just become a wing of the Democratic Party. One of the most uh, frustrating examples we've seen recently is that now you know, Amazon is this huge employer that viciously exploits its workers, subjects them to dangerous conditions. And so there's been an attempt to unionize Amazon. But one of the problems uh, that the labor unions have had in their you know, struggle to, to try and organize at Amazon is that a lot of the staff uh, that they hire are young, liberal, Democratic Party, uh, woke organizers. And when they go into a state like Georgia uh, and, uh, you know, they try to, to organize workers, uh, you know, these, these young, woke Democratic Party organizers uh, are, are more trained in the kind of liberal middle class politics of the Democratic Party uh, and they find it very difficult to talk uh, with working class people in Georgia. Um, and, you know, they're, 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 they're you know, correcting the, the working class people when it, when it comes to issues like, you know, using the right pronouns or, or, or gender or, or, you know, calling people racist and, and such. And, and that the, the Democratic Party woke training apparatus that the labor movement gives its staffers in a way makes them somewhat hostile uh, to the working class. So the labor movement in the United States has, has really kind of dropped the ball. And at the end of the day, their only hope is they need to separate from the Democratic Party. Um, you know, uh, the Democratic Party doesn't have the interests of American workers at heart. And organizing the broad masses of American workers is not the same as kind of whipping up this kind of middle class movement against Donald Trump to, 
to kind of defend the imperialist liberal order. And the labor movement needs to come to terms with that um, if they're going to actually mount a fight back and defeat uh, wealthy capitalists like Jeff Bezos, bring new industries into the into the union movement. Uh, and that's something they're going to have to come to terms with. That the, the Democratic Party just the, the unions just can't be a wing of the Democratic Party. They need to be organizations of the working class. Now that means workers of all nationalities and all genders, uh, and that means that's an inclusive movement, right? And that means saying no to the bigotry that we hear from the Trump camp. But it also means uh, it also means uh, breaking out of kind of loyalty to the Democratic Party, which continues to use the unions, uh, but the unions get no benefit from it. Uh, the Employee Free Choice Act was something that Barack Obama said he supported, uh, and he forgot about it as soon as he took to office. And now in, in his, his State of the Union speech, Joe Biden said he supports the PRO Act, which would strengthen labor unions, but yet we don't see him taking any legislative action to support the PRO Act, right? Unions in the United States are so weak at this point. Um, you know, uh, in the United States, uh, it used to be that if 51% of the employees at any workplace signed a, a card advocating a union contract, you could have a union. That's been overturned. That's long history. And the Taft-Hartley anti-labor law, which was passed amid the McCarthyist hysteria of anti-communism, has made it almost impossible to unionize industries. I mean, sometimes it takes two years for there to be a union election. Um, I mean, it's just it's 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 pretty pretty difficult to organize uh, organize workplaces now in the United States. So uh, the labor movement uh, needs to return to its roots. The strength of the labor movement in the United States, let's remember, came from communism. It always that was when the labor movement was strong. The expansion of industrial unions in this country. The, you know, the real boom happened in 1936 and 1937 when the Communist Party was in a popular front alliance with Roosevelt and they went and organized the industries. And it was the industrial workers of the world, which was a, a revolutionary labor movement before that, uh, you know, that, that it's always been when communist communist politics has dominated the labor movement, that it has been strong and it's expanded and won great victories. Uh, it's been the loyalty to the Democratic Party uh, and in some cases, the Republican Party, in the case of the Teamsters Union, that has resulted in unions declining in their strength. Thanks a lot, Caleb. And there are a lot of, I mean, we have different countries with different histories, but there are a lot of parallels uh, in our situations. Um, and particularly in the situation of the decline in our union movement in the recent decades, and which has, as in your country, been a result of the unions absolutely tying themselves to the Labour Party in our case, and putting the interest, the electoral interest of the Labour Party before everything else, um, and certainly before the interest of their members and, and of the wider working class. Hapal, I wondered if you wanted to say anything about the, the failure of the trade unions uh, to unionise immigrant labour. Well, in, in Britain, the history is even longer. Uh, the unions in Britain have been under the control and domination of what was called the labor aristocracy. When, um, Britain hasn't had, um, I mean, once the Chartist movement was defeated in the middle of the 19th century, uh, then it was followed by Britain's domination in the era of colonial possessions, Britain's domination of the world market, and the British bourgeoisie was able to make certain compromises and grant the British working class a standard of living which they has, haven't had since then. As a result of it, no working class party arose till the end of the 19th century because the uh, labor aristocracy were working in, in alliance with the liberals. 
and Marx described Marx and Engels described this leadership as bribed work, working class leadership, and they were hated for, for for saying so. And in the end, towards the end of the 19th century, there were strikes, uh, and strikes were against employers who happened to be members of the Liberal Party, top notches in the Liberal Party, and therefore the labor aristocrats decided to have a separate representation in parliament and they started what was called the labor the labor representation committee to have working class members in parliament and from 1906 it adopted the name of the labor party so labor party took over from where the liberals left but basically the trade unions have been under the control either of the liberal party or of the labor party i basically under the control of imperialist-minded organizations. But left to themselves, the trade unions can only have trade unionist politics, which at the end of the day is bourgeois politics. And therefore, as Caleb rightly pointed out, that one time that the unions in America have had some successes was when the communists were on the upgrade, when they were making some, some progress. So wherever you look, without the revolutionary leadership of the working class, the trade unions by themselves left to themselves can only work for two cents more for every hour than anything more than that. You have to raise your sights above that and fight for revolutionary solutions. Otherwise, two cents that the bourgeoisie grants you today under, under, under pressure would be lost tomorrow when the situation, economic situation changes. So the working class is constantly engaged in this guerrilla warfare. And that's why Marx said, instead of inscribing on their banner a fair day's uh, uh, wage for a fair day's work, they should inscribe on their banner and to wage slavery. slavery. That's what, what the working class should, should fight for. In the end, it's no point fighting against immigrants because immigration, if anything, is basically, even if it's done under the conditions of imperialism, is a progressive movement it brings workers of countries together. So I guess we've mostly answered this question, but I just want to be um, very clear on it. Um, what should our attitude be towards workers who come from other countries? You know, should we distinguish, as we are kind of constantly encouraged to do, between refugees and economic migrants? Is one of those sort of more worthy of our sympathy and support than the other? Uh, Caleb. Well, I think the attitude is workers of the world unite, right? I mean, we should be embracing of workers of all backgrounds, all nationalities, all ethnicities, all religions, and try to build a, a united working class to struggle against the bosses and the bankers. And we should oppose the repressive uh, anti-immigrant legislation proposed by the right wing, as well as the attitude that the crisis of mass migration is no big deal and should be celebrated that we hear from the liberals. And that at the end of the day, the message needs to be popular power, working class power uh, against the bosses and bankers and their global system of monopoly capitalism. Well, I completely, completely agree. I mean, it's a bogus distinction between asylum seekers and, 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 and economic migrants. Whenever there is restriction on immigration, there's an increase in number of asylum seekers because workers who are trying to escape poverty 
will find a way of becoming asylum seekers. So, and I don't blame them. If I was trying to escape poverty, if I was trying to prevent my children or my family from dying, and I can't get in ordinarily into a place where jobs are available, I will try the methods that are available. And one of them is because the bourgeoisie pretends to be very humanitarian. It gives asylum to people who need asylum. So I know a number of people who have absolutely no reason to feel persecuted in India, but who have sought asylum because that's the only way they, 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 they could come. And you can't blame, blame, blame them for that, forcing them to tell lies. And this is admitted to by honest bourgeois commentators. So I had one last um, question I wanted to ask, really. And again, it just sort of comes back on what we've been talking about. But, Hopal, I've often heard you say uh, that uh, immigration is the Achilles heel of the British working class and our movement. And I wondered, what do you mean by that? Well, it has been since Marx and Engels' days. Uh, you remember the famous letter that Marx, Marx wrote to... Uh, Meyer and Wacht saying, you know, in England, there is a complete division between Irish proletarians and English proletarians. And there is antagonism between the two of them. And that antagonism is a secret to the impotence of the English working class. And it's exploited by the bourgeoisie completely. The English worker lived by that. Um, bourgeois instigated antagonism regards he, he said the irish worker as somebody who lowers his standard of living and the irish worker pays him back by saying well you are just an instrument in the policy of the english ruling class you become an instrument of their ruling class and that antagonism is what actually prevents the british working class from advancing further and that is exactly the exactly the same you take away the Irish worker. I always used to joke with my Irish friends, aren't you lucky we have come because the pressure is not on you anymore. It's on us. And now the Indians are very lucky that the Somalis have come because they are the ones who take, take the brunt. Each new generation of immigrants is the target of, of, of these attacks. And there is something about immigration. It's a bit like nuclear weapons. It's a bit, bit like birth control that people who are born are trying to prevent others from being born under birth control. When they were born, the world was a wonderful place. It was blessed by their coming in on, onto this, this planet. Woe betide if other people are born. Likewise, when America had a nuclear bomb, it was peace, stability, and prosperity of the world. But the moment the Soviet Union and a number of other countries followed, this, this was disturbing. Of course, the peace, the peace of the world, and likewise, it is with really uh, with immigration. When I came to Britain, wasn't Britain blessed that I came and gave my services to Britain? But if another generation comes, then this is terrible. And you know, people who are anti-immigrant, they're not all white English workers. They're second or third generation descendants of immigrants themselves. They can be Jews, they can be Indians, they, they can be Africans, and, I, I, and they can be Irish, 
who say, well, you know, the immigration is destroying our country. It's not immigration that's destroying our country. It's capitalism that's destroying our country. Beautiful. Caleb, do you have any last words before we close up? Sure. I'm in full agreement with that. And, uh, you know, the United States, uh, you know, I, I reflect a lot on how, you know, in, a, in some ways the United States is a bit different because the United States is not a nation state, right? You know, there is, there is no American nationality. Uh, this is a country that was created by capitalism, whether it was people who, who came here as European settlers, whether it was people who, who were, you know, always here with the, the indigenous folks or the Chicano folks, whether it's people that were brought in by the international slave trade and, and you know, the African-American population or the continued inflow of migration. The United States is not a nation state. It's people from all over the world who've been brought together and brought here by capitalism, by, by the capitalist system. Um, and, you know, here, here we've all been brought together to the United States, different, different generations, different backgrounds, but we're going to have to learn to stand together and struggle against our common enemy, uh, U.S. imperialism and the system that they perpetuate all over the world, which has brought us all together onto these shores. Um, and, you know, at the same time that I am opposed to anti-immigrant bigotry and I am opposed to national chauvinism and this arrogance we get in the United States, this is the greatest country in the world. If you don't like it, why don't you move somewhere else? You know, I'm opposed to that. But I argue that that we socialists and communists are the true patriots because it's only by dismantling capitalism and imperialism. It's only by getting rid of a system that puts profits over people. Uh, that we can build a better life here in the United States and that the, the fate of, of the United States and its working class is inevitably tied up uh, with the struggle of workers across the planet. And we shouldn't be going to working class communities and saying, we want to burn it down, we want to destroy it. You know, Instead, we should have the attitude that no, as socialists, we want to make your life better. Uh, as people struggling against capitalism and imperialism, we want to make your life better. If you truly love your country, you must be an internationalist and, and want to stand in solidarity with the working class around the world. There is no contradiction between patriotism and internationalism. To truly love America, you must be an internationalist and a socialist. To truly be an internationalist, you want to make life better in your own country by, by dismantling imperialism. Uh, there's no contradiction between the two, and uh, this needs to be our attitude on these issues. Lovely. Thank you, Caleb. Um, and I guess my closing thought really for our, our listeners, our viewers, is really if you want to understand why our ruling class and their media talk so much about immigration, you just have to realize how important it is and has always been to them to keep us divided because our strength is in numbers, our strength is in unity. And so the most important weapon of our rulers is tactics for division. And the discussion over immigration, the scapegoating of migrants uh, and minorities of all kinds is an essential weapon in the uh, preservation of the capitalist and imperialist system and in the perpetration of imperialist wars, which are carried out uh, alongside this deluge of propaganda against people from elsewhere, against the targeted peoples, uh, to dehumanize them in our eyes. And we must fight that resolutely in order to achieve any advance for for working people, we must learn to unify and overcome the prejudices with which we're infected by our own media. Uh, so on that note, I'd like to thank very much uh, Caleb okay. and Paul. Can I just make one, one point? Please. Can I, can I make just one point? Yep. Yes, yes. Well, um, throughout its existence, human beings have starved 
because there wasn't sufficient food. They've been deprived of housing because there were not enough housing. Capitalism is the first system where people starve because there is too much, too much food. If you got rid of private ownership or the means of production, distribution and exchange, there is so much wealth and so much technology today that the world could become a paradise. The question of there being too many human beings, too many foreigners come, just will not arise. Absolutely. Thank you. So thank you both um, to Caleb, to Hapal. Um, thank you for the benefit of your wisdom and experience. We'll be back in two weeks time for another episode. And in the meantime, if you have got questions that you would like Caleb and Hapal to discuss, um, drop them into the comments um, and we'll add them onto our list of, of possible talking points. Thank you. Thank you.